verse 1 of chapter 14 in the book of Romans. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the person, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, while the, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Father, we ask that you help us as we study this text. Lord, speak to us even now. Help me to communicate that I preach your word, not merely my ideas. Help us to receive it, open our hearts, and shape us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm preaching to you this morning, Romans 14, 1 through 12, and I'm going to title this sermon, Welcoming the Weak. Somebody say, Welcoming the Weak. In the year 49 AD, Emperor Claudius of Rome kicked the Jews out of Rome. Now, there were Jewish Christians, Jews who came to know Jesus Christ. And along with all of the other Jews, the Jewish Christians were also kicked out of Rome in 49. Now, from that time on, the Gentile Christians who remained behind were forming the culture of the churches in Rome. Now, the Gentile Christians did not have the background of the Torah, of the Mosaic Law. They had come to Christ as Gentiles. And so for them, things like the Sabbath, on, being on Saturdays, going to the synagogue, that's not something they ever did. Dietary restrictions of the Mosaic Law, where they were not allowed to eat, like pork, for instance, the meat of the, uh, you know, the, the, the certain kinds of animals. That wasn't an issue for them because they've always eaten meat, all right? So they were meat eaters, and they would go uh, uh, work on, on the Sabbath, on the Jewish Sabbath. And so as their churches formed, they formed with all of the liberties of the gospel because Keep note, you guys know some biblical theology. 
when Christ came, all of that ceremonial stuff in the Old Testament, you know, things like Sabbath days, things like dietary restrictions, clothing, not trimming the edges of your beard, all of that, according to Hebrews, is fulfilled in Christ. And so the Gentiles freely live in the freedom of the gospel, and that's how their churches were formed. Now, at the same time, I can only imagine that the Jewish Christians during this time, wherever they went, they certainly believed in justification by faith alone, which by the way, we've got to understand that they would not be Christians if they did not believe justification by faith alone. Meaning if they believed that their dietary restrictions was part of getting saved, we wouldn't call them Christians. You see what I'm saying? So they definitely believed that justification was by faith alone. However, old habits die hard. And for them, it was hard to walk away from a Saturday Sabbath. Most theologians believe that the early Jews probably maintained a Saturday synagogue kind of Sabbath practice early on until they were eventually kicked out of the synagogues. Most of them believe, most of the theologians believe that the Jewish Christians probably retained their clothing, uh, their, their dietary restrictions, their appearances. They remained culturally Jews, not just out of habit, but they actually still believed that while they're justified by faith alone, that doing these ceremonial things was in like something God wanted them to do. They actually believed that this was pleasing to God for them to live in this way. Now, five years later in Rome, after they were kicked out, Emperor Nero comes into power. Five years later in the year 54 AD, Nero starts welcoming Jews back into Rome. Shortly thereafter is when Paul wrote this. Can you imagine what's going on in the Roman churches right now? Like in my sanctified imagination, as the old preachers say, you, I, I can see sort of the Jewish Christians coming back into Rome, settling. They're visiting the, the Roman churches, which, by the way, are shaped now by Gentiles living in the freedoms of the gospel. And the Jews are walking in with their beards kind of shaped the way they would have been shaped, with their clothing the Jews are not eating the pork at the potluck. They're still struggling with the whole fact that the Gentile Christians are going to work on Saturdays and not honoring the Sabbath. You can only imagine the culture clash that is happening in the Roman churches. The clash of culture is a threat for us today as well as it was for them. Leon Morris put it like this. He says, the church was never meant to be a cozy club of one race, social position, or intellectual caliber. They were not meant to be clones of one another. One of the difficulties churches always faced is that it included in its membership those who are the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless, those from every station of society, old and young, adults and children, conservatives 
and radicals. Question. Do our differences demand division? That's the question we face. Or, there's another option. Do our differences display true gospel unity? Now, there is a real possibility that our differences, religious background differences, cultural differences, habit differences, preference differences, ethnic differences, economic differences, it's possible that our differences could divide us. Don't just assume that they won't pose a threat at any time or that they might not currently pose a threat. Our differences could divide us. And that was the possibility of what was happening in the Roman churches. There was this threat that their differences could actually divide them. And so the question then that I want to start off with is why did Paul even care? Like why not just let the Roman churches divide into nice little, you know, meat-eating Gentile churches over here and then nice little Sabbath-honoring Jewish churches over there. What's the big deal? Why would that be a problem? Well, we've got to go back just two chapters to Romans chapter 12, verse 5, in which Paul says, So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. You see, so what's at stake with the possibility of division? What's at stake? What's at stake is not just diversity for diversity's sake. That's dumb. What's at stake is not just simply having nice, diverse friendships. That's shallow. What's at stake is not just this modern idea of being tolerant with each other. What's at stake is the actual display of the gospel. What's at stake is the display of Christ. Though we, though are many and diverse, Paul says we are one body. And that is to be shown because we have one Savior. There is not a Savior of the Jews and a Savior of the Gentiles. There is one Savior and we are in that one Savior. We are clothed in his righteousness. We are with Christ. And if we are with Christ, then I am with you. If you're with Christ, then you are with me. And so we display to the community who Christ is by being one in our differences and not allowing these things to divide us. So how? How do we get there? Well, that's why I like these 12 verses. Now, let me just say this real quick. Paul spent 13 chapters getting to the 14th chapter, if you can do the math. What I mean by that is he spent 13 chapters going through all the doctrine of the gospel, and then chapter 12, so he's saying, so now let's be transformed people, let's live differently because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that looks like love, chapter 12 and chapter 13. And now he gets to chapter 14. It's almost as if this stuff that's so, it would have been so sensitive, what he's dealing with here. This would have been the maybe felt issue for a lot of churches. 
He had to deal with all this other stuff first to get to this point. And when he gets to this point, it is so helpful. So when we look at these 12 chapters, what we discover is how in a gospel-shaped community, our differences don't divide, but how our differences actually display the gospel. Let me show you four ways out of this text. The first comes from verses one through three, and it's my first point. It is this. Number one, in a gospel community, the weak are welcomed. In a gospel community, the weak are welcomed. Look at verse one. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Meaning, don't just bring him in because you like to have a good fight but welcome him. Now, who is the weak? That's the first question we have to ask ourselves. The weak is, according to this text, the individual, the Christian, who does not fully understand all their freedoms in Christ. The weak is the one who maintains all of the additional rules and restrictions and ceremonies and habits as part of their obedience to Christ. Now, the weak, they're not weak in the gospel in that they do understand the gospel. I can't emphasize that enough. These Jewish Christians are not legalists. Paul had hard things to say about Jewish legalists. He would have not encouraged them to welcome the legalists into their midst. So where are they weak? They're weak in, that, in, in their understanding of the implications of the gospel. Meaning they know that they are justified by faith through Jesus Christ, by grace rather, through Jesus Christ, through their faith in Christ and in Christ alone. They know that. They believe that. Yet, here's where they're weak. They can't shake this feeling every Saturday morning that they must observe the Sabbath in order to glorify God with their life. So, so the implications of the gospel have not been fully realized in, in, in their life. He tells us in verse 2 exactly who he's talking about, who the weak are. He says, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. So if you're a vegetarian, you are weak. No, I'm just playing with you. I'm just playing. No, but, but for real though, like if you are a vegetarian because you believe that being a vegetarian is more God glorifying than a meat eater, you actually are among the weak, meaning there, there are some things that are non-essentials that you've added to your following of Christ. So he's, here, what he's saying is, is that the Jews are the weak, whereas the Gentiles in this context, in this, in this text, would be the stronger of the two, meaning the stronger of the two know that there are no ceremonial laws that God requires of us today. And so for some, you know, you might think of dress. You might think of days. You might think of diet. 
Practically speaking, certainly I'm just trying to think through like what are ways that we might divide in various churches. You know, some people might think that they must dress a certain way for church in order to make God happy. You know, so they maybe wear a suit or they wear a gray sweat sweatshirt or, you know, whereas, whereas others are, feel free to wear a hoodie and a t-shirt. Amen. Some wear head coverings as, as maybe part of their, what they grew up with, but they also believe that that's something that I ought to do in honor uh, to God, whereas others don't. Now, what happens is, is that the one who has the dress code is tempted to judge the person that does not follow the dress code. And, but it goes the other way around. The emphasis here is actually on the weak. Meaning the one who is liberated from the dress code. They're tempted to despise the one who maintains the dress code. Are you with me so far? Another example could be uh, drinking alcohol. Some people don't drink alcohol as part of their commitment to God. They feel like that's the right thing to do. Don't even touch the stuff. Don't even look at it. I don't even go into a liquor store to, 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 to buy uh, beer for my beer bread. I don't know. It just popped in my head. Whereas others feel free to consume wine or beer or whatever without getting drunk. Same thing applies. One group is tempted to judge the other, and the other is tempted to despise the one. There are some who are strict Sabbatarians, even as it relates to the Lord's Day or Sundays, and they strictly follow Sundays as a Sabbath, and they don't eat, uh, uh, eat at restaurants, and they, you know, they, they uh, commit the whole day to to worship and to being with God's people, which I think is a wonderful thing to do. But then others feel free to go bowling on the Sabbath or work in the afternoons. And again, the same thing applies. One is tempted to judge the other, and the other is tempted to despise the one. Now, here's the admonition he gives us in verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. He says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Going back to verse 1 where we see that we are to welcome. That word welcome, the Greek scholars tell us, means to thoroughly receive. Not just kind of receive, but thoroughly receive or warmly welcome them into our midst. And so what he's telling us is as these Jewish Christians are coming back into Rome and they've got the dress and they've got the diet and they've got the days. He's saying, do not despise them, but warmly receive them into your midst. Bring them in. In all ways, in every way, let them be part of your community. And then he also is saying here to the Jewish Christian or to anybody else that falls into this category, be careful that you don't judge their freedoms, their liberties. It's as simple as that. Don't despise and don't judge. That's it. How do we do this? That's the answer. Don't despise and don't judge. And some of you might need to turn and repent of despising and judging. Don't despise 
and don't judge. Now, Paul does go on. He gives us in verse 4 through verse 6, he gives us uh, a deeper understanding of this issue to help us not despise, to help us not judge. I think of the old phrase, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. In that non-essentials piece right there, in non-essentials, liberty, in non-essentials, freedom, what can help us to not judge and not despise? It's what we see next. Look at verse 4 through verse 6. In verse 4, Paul uses a master-servant analogy, and that is to say that the servant must care most about what the master thinks and not about what everybody else thinks. Look at verse 4. He says, who are you to pass judgment on a servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands and falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Let's just pause right there. So the Jews likely kept various sacred days throughout the calendar. They likely kept Saturday Sabbaths, not only out of habit, but out of believing that this is what God wanted of them. Now, what's interesting is this, is that they were essentially wrong meaning that they could have done whatever they wanted to do, as long as it wasn't sin, on a Saturday. But what he's saying is, is even though they might be essentially wrong, theologically, and we can talk about that, he's saying that their motivation as to why they do what they do actually matters. He goes on in verse 5 to explain this. He says, so each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 6, the one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Look, never once does Paul get into the dispute on days and diet. But rather... He's keeping the central issue, not on the external, but on the internal. Notice in verse 6, five times, he talks about not the ritual, but he talks about the motivation behind the ritual. Five times, in honor of the Lord, number one. In honor of the Lord, number two. Giving thanks to God, number three. In honor of the Lord, number four. Giving thanks to God, number five. Meaning what matters is the heart. God is not as concerned about your physical posture, you see, as he is about your heart posture. You know, a practical example and outworking of this could be on how we vote. I don't know if there's anything in today's American society that could divide churches more than the Republican and Democratic kind of lines that can be drawn, especially with social media, and you can look at everybody's page and kind of figure out who people are voting for. And then we're, you know, why not have Democrat church? Why not have a Republican? Well, wouldn't that be easier? Well, the same thing applies here. And we've got another voting season coming up sooner than later. 
I remember with our last very contentious voting season, there were two people in our church that were voting two very different ways. And I recall a conversation with them on, they were having a conversation among themselves on why are you voting the way that you're voting? And what they discovered was that each was voting the way that they were voting in honor of the Lord. Meaning they actually thought that this vote would best honor God in this crazy society in which we live. With all of the mess in politics. What they united on, listen to this, was not the vote. What they united on was the motivation. We both want to honor God. We both want to give thanks to God. You see, this is where we find unity is when we actually have conversations with each other and we discover that the person who's different, doing something different than me, is not just trying to be a rebel or trying to be different from me or trying to make themselves stand out in some way, but they're actually doing something that they genuinely believe honors God. And when we discover that through loving conversations with each other, we begin to get somewhere, church, as it relates to our unity. Because I want you to honor God. As I want to honor God. So let me put it like this. You know, if, if, if wine, if somebody gives up wine in honor to God, it is not my place to despise them for not drinking. If somebody observes a certain day. Like, for instance, today's the day of Pentecost. In the liturgical calendar, Brian Sessions and I were just talking about like Easter and Pentecost and just kind of how we come up with this whole calendar, and it's all extra-biblical stuff, you know? But some people will observe the day truly, listen, in honor to God. Well, I should not despise them. And if I don't observe the day, they should not judge me because I'm doing it in honor. Does that make sense? Even things that, think of something like Christmas. Some people observe, I would say most people observe Christmas. If you observe Christmas, do you do it in honor of God? Whereas someone else might add some Kwanzaa in, in honor to God. Whereas another gives up all holidays and says, you know, as a Christian, I'm not going to observe any holidays. It applies, church. What's the motivation behind what you're doing? Why you choose to do what you do? And when something doesn't make sense in a church, have a conversation with that person and find out what their hard motivation is. And what you'll discover is that we are unified in Christ Jesus. What unites us is not our physical posture, but our heart postures. What unites us is not our days, but our disposition. Amen? Come on, I need some, I need some amens. I need some help here. I'm wondering if you're even tracking with me. All right, that leads me to my third point, and that is this. Gospel community keeps the main thing the main thing. Gospel communi community keeps the main thing the main thing, verses 7 through 9. Before I get into it, let me just tell you this. I may have used this uh, quote before. I don't remember. But John Newton, before he died, he had dementia. And 
uh, as, as he was only a few weeks from his death, he knew that he had dementia, and he said these sweet words to a friend of his. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but I rem remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. What I love about that is that John Newton kept the main thing, the main thing, even with dementia a few weeks before he passed away. Look at verses 7 through 9. He says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. As a servant works only to his master, to please his master, what he's saying is this. He's turning that analogy to us, and he's saying that you belong to the Lord. Susanna belongs to the Lord. Kavan belongs to the Lord. We belong to the Lord. And if we belong to the Lord, then we must keep that belonging to the Lord the main thing. And so therefore we live to please who? Not one another. But our heart disposition is to please the Lord. What matters then are not these periphery issues of taste and culture. What matters most then are not these periphery issues of days and diet. But what matters is Christ, he's saying. Verse 7, he says, nobody lives to himself. Nobody dies to himself. If we live, we live that Christ might be glorified. That's it. And if we die, we die that Christ might be glorified. Because we are the Lord's. We belong to the Lord. And he says, to this end, Christ died and rose again. Listen, if you're not a Christian, I want you to know that Jesus lived the life that you should have lived and that I should have lived. He died a death that you should have died and that I should have died. And when he died, he took the judgment of God for my sin and for your sin, and he bore all of the weight of that judgment on the cross. And three days later, he rose again from the dead, defeating sin. Forgiveness is yours in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Because he says, all who turn from your sins and trust in me, you're forgiven now of your sin. And one day, you will be freed from even the presence of sin. You see, Paul wants us to keep our eyes focused on that message. And not just, not just simply the evangelistic call to repent and believe, but the day-to-day -day call to repent and believe. That we keep our eyes focused on Christ who died and lived for us. Let me give you two ways in which focusing, keeping our focus the main thing, or keeping the main thing the main thing, as I said earlier, how that helps us discover unity in our differences. Number one, we are dying. We are dying. 
To quote Richard Baxter, Baxter once said that he preaches as a dying man to dying men. I preach as a dying man to dying men. You serve as a dying man to dying men. You are dying. And you are loving dying people. You see, in a few short decades, church, many of us will be dead. In a few short decades, many of us will be nearing our death. Our life will have been lived. For some of us, we will die much sooner than that. Maybe very soon. Meaning life truly is a vapor. When you're alive, when you're young, and often even when you're old, you don't realize that. And you get so hung up on these periphery arguments. Just so I can get my way, so I can win my way, so I can feel better about myself, so I can prove them wrong. We are dying people. And we're seeking to love dying people. When you die and you wake up in glory, you will not be proud of all of your arguments over the non-essentials. In our dying breath, may we be like John Newton, who says, what I remember is the main thing. Keeping the main thing the main thing. Number one, we're dying. Second way that this helps us is that Christ is the Lord. Christ is the Lord. Keeping the main thing the main thing reminds all of us that Jesus is our Lord, not each other. So verse 3, going back to verse 3, we saw that this reason to not despise or judge one another was based on the fact that, quote, God has welcomed them. Don't judge the Jewish Christian as they're coming in with all of their diet and their days. He's saying, you got to recognize God has already welcomed this person. You see, if Christ rose from the dead, then he is the Lord. Plus, let me give you an equation here. Plus, they belong to Christ. Plus, God has welcomed them. So mathematicians, what does that equal? What it equals is that you should welcome them. If God has welcomed them and Christ is their Lord, then I must welcome them. If Christ has accepted, who am I to reject? If Christ has welcomed, who am I to judge. So may we be like John Newton. Not at the end of our life saying, oh, I don't remember much. But one thing I do remember is that I despise those people that don't follow the dress code. May we not say, oh, I don't remember much. My mind's fading. But I do remember my lips have never tasted a glass of wine, and I judge those that do. May that not be our, our hallmark that we're leaving behind. But let us say, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a great Savior. Amen? And that leads me to my fourth and final point on how gospel community unites Churches with differences. We welcome the weak. The motivation is appreciated. 
The main thing is the main thing. And number four, in a gospel community, the ground is level. The last three verses here, verses 10 through 12, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Verse 10 is reiterating the main theme. A new foundation, however, is given for that imperative. And that is this. He says, for, here's the reason, we will all stand before the Lord. Verses 10 through 12 is almost verbatim restating what he said in verses 1 through 3. Meaning in 1 through 3, he says, if the Lord welcomes the weak, then you should too. And now what he's saying is, is you should welcome the weak. You should not pass judgment. You should not despise. Why? Here's the reason. For you will all, we will all stand before the Lord. That's why I say the ground is level. Another reason I love these verses being here is because they answer a crucial question that I know I would be asked if I don't address it in my sermon. And that is this. Do we welcome each other when we disagree on what is actually a sin issue? Are you tracking with me? Meaning an essential. So, for example, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, 1860s, uh, he, would have, he would have said this. He could not understand how white, Christian, uh, uh, white Christians in America could hold slaves. And Spurgeon said, quote, I commune, I commune the Lord's table with men of all creeds, yet with a slaveholder I have no fellowship of any sort. Is Spurgeon violating Romans 14? Should he welcome the slaveholder? Where is the line on unity? Or is there a time where we say, no, that's sin. You are not welcome to the table. Is there a time where we say, no, this is an issue in which we must divide and not bring in. Are you with me? Yes? In other words, if I add to the gospel, and I say my salvation is contingent on the way that I dress, I'm adding works to faith. Or if you take away from the gospel, and you say it's okay to sin as long as my motivation and my heart is right, do we, do we seek to find unity in that, in that kind of setting? The answer is absolutely not. Why? Right here. We will all stand before the Lord, and the Lord is the judge. He's drawing out what the Lord actually requires and says. Not me and not you. And so he quotes Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23, in which everyone in verse 12 will give an account. Every language, every nation, everybody, level playing field, ground is level at, the, at this judgment seat. Everybody is going to give an account of themselves. And so as we're talking about 
welcoming those who are different from us. We're not saying, we're not talking about differences in the essentials. Like there are places where we say, no, that's not who Christ is. Uh, so I agree with Charles Spurgeon's stance. That's my point. I think, he, yes, amen. We will not commune with those who do not represent Jesus. So the issue here is not to just take away all the essentials of Scripture and say, okay, so, you know, whatever you, you, whatever you want to do. Like, so often I hear professing Christians say things like, you know, it's not wrong for me because I don't have some issue against it in my own heart. I feel okay about this. Well, what does God say? I don't care at that point what you feel because God has spoken, and do we take God at his word or don't we? You know, somebody could be like living like a heathen in drunkenness and say, well, you can't judge me. Look at Romans 14. Or they, they just throw out God's order for marriage and they want to embrace sexual immorality and they have this sense that like, well, it's God's okay with me, and so therefore you should be as well. You need to welcome me. You know, people talk about, well, that's your truth, but this is my truth. What he's saying here, I love, I love how he kind of closes out with this. Because what he's saying is, is at the end of the day, it's not actually me that you're going to stand before. But you're going to stand before God and give an account of how you handle his word. And I'm going to stand before God and give an account to how I handled his word. So it doesn't matter the motivation. Participating in sin never pleases God. You see, the issue that we're dealing with here with the Jews, say, observing the Sabbath day, is that it's not actually a sin to take the day off. They're not in sin. And their motivation is that of pleasing God. I could put it like this way. The, the licentious, they take away from the gospel and they follow their flesh and they say, nobody can be my judge and they need to hear, you might need to hear, God will be your judge. You know, nobody but God can judge me. That's a, that's a true statement. The legalists, however, on the opposite side, the legalists, the person that, person that adds to the gospel, they act out of pride. And they might be doing all the right things, but their heart is not that of honoring God. And God looks at a, not just our, what we do with our hands, but God sees the heart. You see, the Christian is neither the legalist nor the licentious. The Christian says, I stand on Christ alone, and I stand with all who stand with Christ alone. And though some of my friends, some of my fellow church members might add needless ceremony and traditions to their faith, I have genuine love for them because I know that they have genuine love for the Lord. And I give them liberty as they give me liberty. Christ alone. Christ alone. That's what we stand on. That's how we find gospel unity in this community with differences. In essentials, we find unity. We must agree on what God says. We must take God at his word. But in the non-essentials, the non we have liberty. In 1912, the ship Endurance 
was crushed in the middle of icebergs. And their captain, Ernest Shackleton, and 27 men and their crew got out of the ship in the middle of nothing but ice. And they had to survive and walk 300 miles across ice and float on ice flows to try to survive and find safety. It was very likely that they would die. As the bitter cold and hopelessness set in, Shackleton wrote in his, in his journal that he was very concerned. But what I noticed when I was reading this book was interesting. Shackleton wrote, he said, of all the enemies, the cold, the ice, and the sea, what he feared the most was disunity among his 27-member crew. What he knew was that if there's disunity among the group, they will not accomplish their mission. They will not make it. And so what Captain Shackleton did, which was remarkable, was instead of just giving harsh words and yelling at them and saying, hey, you guys got to get it together, you got, you know, what he did was he welcomed each of the 27 in a way that they felt it. So, for instance, one man was argumentative, and he welcomed that man into his own tent, and he said, I'm going to make him my tentmate. Another man was power-hungry and was always trying Captain Shackleton, and he said, I'm going to make him my tentmate as well. And he welcomed him in, and he made him feel special. And what happened was he was able, in his welcoming of each of the crew members, he was able to unite the entire crew, and they went on their mission. Saints, in the same way a divided church is a deficient church, if we divide over our differences, we will never impact Baltimore City in the way that we could with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But thanks be to God that our captain is not me. And it ain't Andrew or Eric or Mike Roach or any of our deacons or our leaders. Our captain is the Lord Jesus Christ who died and lived so that we might be owned by him. And how does Jesus bring unity to this church? This is how he welcomes each one of us into his own tent. He welcomes each one of us with all of our background and all of our baggage and all of our issues and all of our misunderstandings of what it looks like to correctly follow Jesus in this world. He welcomes us into his own tent and he loves us with his very own life. Are you glad that Jesus welcomed you? Oh, well, then be glad that he welcomed the person who's different from you. And if he welcomed them, church, we welcome each other. Amen? Father, we thank you that Jesus welcomed us. God, I pray that we will be a church that displays the beauty of Jesus Christ, the glory of Christ, that displays the gospel to the world around us. And let us remain a church unified on mission together that the lost might come to know Jesus and be saved. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.